problem, the solution, and the challenges before us. Touching on essential questions concerning the actual history of this country, the nature of the capitalist imperialist system we live under, the consequences of this for humanity, the way forward to a world free of the unnecessary suffering and horrors bound up with all this, and the breakthroughs that, that, the breakthroughs that must be made now. One, breaking with American chauvinism and the killing confines of capitalism. Contrary to all the mythology that's constantly perpetrated and perpetuated through the dominant institutions of this society and all of its spokespeople, the wealth of this country and the situation of the people within it is not owing to some great freedoms that are particular to this country and to the great innovativeness that this freedom allows and encourages. To get to the reality of what this really rests on, we could go back to Marx speaking about the primitive accumulation of capitalism on the basis of horrific plunder and unbelievable exploitation of masses of people in far-flung parts of the world. This provided the foundation on which the accumulation of capitalism began, coming out of feudal society, and the basis on which whatever innovation was carried out ultimately rested. Marx also spoke of the rosy dawn of capitalism with great irony. In the book Preaching from a Pulpit of Bones, I quoted Jack Weatherford, who wrote Indian Givers, How the Indians of the Americas Transformed the World. And he begins with this statement. The capitalists, speaking of the United States in particular, but the capitalists in, the world, in Europe and other places as well, the capitalists built a new structure on the twin supports of the slave trade from Africa to America and the piracy of American silver. And then he goes on to quote Marx about the rosy dawn. Quote, the discovery of gold and silver in America, the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment in mines of the aboriginal population, the beginning of the conquest and looting of the East Indies, the turning of Africa into a warren for the commercial hunting of black skins, signalized the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist production. And this is a basic and irrefutable truth. Now we hear in connection with all these notions of the great freedom and innovativeness of these people in this country and how the freedom allows for this innovativeness. We hear a lot about the expression American exceptionalism. Now when first hearing this term, you might think, you might not recognize that there is actually a certain ironic twist to this. You might think, yeah, well, that, that makes sense, American socialism. We, you know, we have this good democracy here and people have a lot of freedom, but of course there are you know, some things that ran really contrary to that in the history of the country, like the genocide against the Indians and all the slavery and everything else. So that makes sense, it's, it's an exception. It's a democracy, but it's kind of an exception because it has all these negative features associated with it. And then lo and behold, you discover that's not what it means that American exceptionalism means America's exceptionally good. 
that even in comparison to all the other capitalist democracies in the world, there's something special, a shining city on the hill, as Reagan, for example, invoked it. You know, this image that there's something particularly and specially good about America and its people. You know, and you have to think, you know, what an irony. You know, this is completely upside down. You know, if anybody wants to talk about exception, it should be talked about in the way I was just referring to it, that there's some real negative things here that stand in sharp conflict to our democracy, you know, which we still haven't yet overcome. But no, it means the opposite. We're exceptionally good. And think of the level of American chauvinism you have to have internalized not to vomit upon hearing that. Let's, let's look a little bit more at the actual founding cornerstone and the long shadow of slavery in this country. Along with the genocidal dispossession and rounding up into concentration camps called reservations of the native population, the original population, the treatment of black people in this country, the horrific oppression of black people from the time of slavery down to today, if you want to talk about a special characteristic of America, that's one of the most distinguishing. And that, that, that slavery has been built into the very foundation. It is a cornerstone of the entire society, and its shadow continues to cast itself over the entire society, the entire country, and everything about it, right down to today. If you look at the founding documents of this country, for example, if you look at the Declaration of Independence, what, is it, what are the indictments that are made against the King of England in declaring independence? Among them is the following. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers the merciless Indian savages. Now think about this. Here are the people who, who repeatedly broke treaties with these very Native Americans, with the original inhabitants, who never in fact kept a single treaty they made with them, who drove them repeatedly off land, would grant them land, oh, but wait a minute, there's gold there. So they have to be uprooted again, put on these you know, trail of tears marches where thousands die over and over and over again. And then in turn we hear these people described as the merciless Indian savages whom the King of England is inciting against these, you know, these settlers. This is one of the great crimes of the King of England according to the Declaration of Independence. Again, reality is turned completely on its head. And then of course it goes on and talks about how the King of England has forced a slave trade upon the European settlers of, the, of this territory, as if somehow none of them, including Thomas Jefferson, wanted to have slaves. Never mind the fact that he, did the, he, he, he uh, engineered the Louisiana Purchase to greatly expand the, the territory that would be slave-based. Somehow, supposedly, you know, the King of England is responsible for forcing slavery on people like Jefferson and these other founders. Or look at the Constitution of the United States. 
not only the infamous three-fifths three clause, which declared that the slaves were three-fifths human beings to be counted as three-fifths for the purposes of taxation and representation, but even such things as the Electoral College were in fact engineered in that way, established and established in their particular form as concessions to the slave states. And recently, in the New York Times, in a special supplement on the Constitution in, on July 2nd, 2017, Gary Wills went into how the Second Amendment itself was not about individuals owning arms. That's not what was being, that was not the concern that was being addressed. It was, in particular, the right of the slave states to have militias to hunt down slaves and put down slave insurrections. So right there again, in, in the very founding of this country's basic documents, and in the way this has extended its shadow right down to today, the horrific oppression of the original inhabitants and then of black people, or black people along with that, is right at the core of what this country is about from the beginning to today. The fact is that white supremacy and its continuation in different but always horrific forms has been built into the very structure, very foundation and structures, the social relations and the culture of this system in this country, and is an indispensable part of its ongoing cohesion and functioning. Now, in light of all this, you might think it's a little ridiculous when people say, oh, something like fascism couldn't really happen here. We have all these institutional protections against it. And, you know, once again, we are these exceptional people. So how could fascism happen here? It couldn't happen here. Oh, no, it couldn't happen here not in a country founded on slavery and genocide and steeped in white supremacy as well as male supremacy, manifest destiny and white man's burden. Oh no, it couldn't happen in a country like that. And it is important to point out that all of these things, the, the white supremacy, the male supremacy, the American chauvinism, the manifest destiny, the white man's burden, all of these have been and remain Inter intertwined and mutually reinforcing. If you turn to the book, for example, Rebirth of a Nation by Jackson Lears, which focuses on the era when the US really pushed itself out into the world as a colonial power, gobbling up the Philippines as well as Puerto Rico, Guam, Cuba and entering onto the world stage as a, on a level of thuggery, you know, uh, previously, you know, unseen. He talks about how all this was bound up with a certain sense of male identity and male assertiveness, as well as white supremacy and in rather grotesque forms, unvarnished, the way we're seeing it coming back now unvarnished uh, under the Trump-Pench fascist regime. 
For example, he quotes a woman, Rebecca Latimer Felton, who was a wife and campaign manager, not of a dog catcher, but of a U.S. congressman, who said that one of the great problems in American society was that men were not providing adequate attention to white, and I'm quoting now, I'm quoting Lears now, white women's vulnerability to the black rapists who were supposedly roaming the rural South. The fault, she declared, and I'm continuing reading from Lears, the fault, she declared, lay with Southern white men. They had failed to put a, quote unquote, sheltering arm about innocence and virtue, unquote. She concluded that if lynching was required, quote, to protect woman's dearest possession from the ravening human beasts, then I say lynch a thousand times a week if necessary. The wife and campaign manager of a U.S. congressman. Or let's look at another statement which shows the horrendous dimensions of this and the way in which all this is intertwined. In particular here, the male chauvinism, the patriarchy, the misogyny. Here Lears writes, behind all the economic calculations and all the lofty rhetoric about civilization and progress was a primal emotion, a yearning to reassert control, a masculine will to power, and in particular, this was speaking to the sense that the elite, the wealthy men, had become soft as a result of their riches. And so, what was said was necessary to deal with that? War. This would be a masculinizing effect on these feminized, wealthy, effete men. This was a way that they could experience regeneration. Or look at the, the following comment. Speaking about the cult of courage and the urge to warfare. Here, Lears writes, was the germ of the worship of force, the secular religion that underlay the regeneration of masculine will. And here's something very interesting in light of the tactics and even strategic approach of US imperialism in invading and occupying countries these days. If you think back, for example, to the first Iraq invasion in 1991, Colin Powell said, we're not imperialists. We don't invade countries into, to, in order to occupy them. We don't engage in permanent occupation. We just democratize them and then leave them to the people to run themselves. Well, this is a well-worn approach of the imperialists, which was in, which was being applied as far back as the turn of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century. And Lears speaks to this. He speaks to the approach that the American empire would depend only in part on formal acquisition of foreign colonies, which it did occupy, for example, once again, the Philippines. The American Empire, oh, more commonly, it would involve periodic military intervention 
rather than permanent occupation, and support for governments friendly to American policy. This indirect approach to colonialism, I'm adding, to colonialism, this indirect approach would make it easier for American imperialists to wrap themselves in exceptionalist rhetoric and claim moral superiority to their European counterparts. Here we are again with American exceptionalism, ravishing and plundering colonialism with a particular twist that enables them to say, oh no, we're not colonialists like those Europeans. And finally, from, from Lears, he talks about how the resistance of the Philippine people to U.S. occupation was taken by the Americans, including the soldiers, the American, the soldiers of the American Imperium, was taken as an, an affront to white identity and to white being. So all you can see how all this is all intertwined and mutually reinforcing. And then there's a, something that should also be recognized, especially in light of the present situation. There is a direct line and deep connection between all this and the way in which all this is intertwined and mutually in reinforcing. A direct line and direct connection between all this and the virulent hatred and repressive actions directed today against the fight for the recognition of the humanity and the rights of LGBT people. It is crucial that people be one, including through struggle, wage wealth, to look squarely into the reality of what this system is built on and how it really works, and come to understand why the horrors it causes cannot be reformed away. Here, I can only touch on the actual reality of what this system is, how it operates and why, and the terrible consequences of this for humanity. In the interview with Ardea Skybreak, Science and Revolution, this is discussed more fully. In the new communism, the basic contradictions and dynamics of the system are dug into in some depth. And there is continual exposure and analysis fleshing out all of this on the website revcom.us. But, but to put this in kind of a concentrated way, and what is the actual history and foundation and reality of this country, let's look at basics one, two, three, and four. Beginning with basics one, there would be no United States as we now know it today without slavery. That is a simple and basic truth. Now, of course, slavery was not the only factor that played a significant part in the emergence of the US as a world power whose economic strength underlies its massive military force. A major historical factor in all this was the theft of land on a massive scale from Mexico as well as from native peoples. But in turn, much of that conquest of land was for a long period of time up until the Civil War, largely to expand the slave system. Remember the Alamo, we are always reminded. Well, many of the heroes of the Alamo were slave traders and slave chasers. And expanding the slave system was a major aim of the overall war with Mexico. 
although that war also led to the westward expansion of the developing capitalist system centered in the northern United States. The essence of what exists in the US is not de democracy, but capitalism imperialism and political structures to enforce that capitalism imperialism. What the US spreads around the world is not democracy, but imperialism and political structures to enforce that imperialism. Not only did slavery pay, play a major role in the historical development of the US, but the wealth and power of the US rests today on a worldwide system of imperialist exploitation that ensnares hundreds of millions and ultimately billions of people in conditions hardly better than those of slaves. Now, if this seems like an extreme or extravagant claim, think about the tens of millions of children throughout the third world who from a very, very early age are working nearly every day of the year, as the slaves on the southern plantations in the United States used to say, from can't see in the morning till can't see at night, until they've been physically used up. These are conditions very similar to outright slavery. This includes overt sexual harassment of women and many other degradations as well. All this is the foundation on which the imperialist system rests, with US imperialism, US imperialism now sitting atop it all. Now again, this might sound like exaggerated or extreme descriptions, but in fact it is an accurate description of the reality of today and the whole historical development leading up to it in terms of this country and its role in the world. As I said elsewhere, many examples have been given to bring to life more fully the reality of this, and much analysis has been made of how and why this system cannot operate on any other basis than this, for example, in the book, The New Communism. But as a shorthand way of saying this, it can simply be stated that there is not a single thing that finds its way into the consumption markets of the US and similar countries, which has not gone through in its chain of production horrific forms of the most vicious exploitation and oppression, not a thing. In far-flung far -flung parts of the world, in particular, the third world. We can go to another statement by Marx. Capitalism came into the world with blood dripping from every pore, and it has maintained itself down to the present day on an even greater scale on exactly the same basis. This country and this system is most emphatically not a force for good in the world, but on the contrary, the greatest cause of unnecessary suffering for the masses of humanity. Now let's look at another one of the narratives they like to run out to talk about the great nature of this country and of this system of capitalism job creation. The capitalists are not exploiting people, they're creating jobs. If they go to Indonesia or Guatemala or Haiti or Pakistan or Bangladesh or India and have children or even adults 
working for less than a dollar a day, why that's better than the alternative. If it weren't for these capitalists going there, these people wouldn't have a way to have a livelihood at all. So yes, maybe the conditions are not as good as you and I might like them to be, but they're much better than they would be otherwise. This is a typical rationalization, one of the most disgusting rationalizations. And it's a complete tautology. It amounts to saying, under the system of capitalism and imperialism, of capitalist imperialism, the choices people have range from bad to worse. And it's a complete lie. If you step away and out of the confines of the, of the self-contained logic of the capitalist system, think about it. The raw materials are there. The people are there. That's what you need to develop an economy. The question is, on what terms and through what means are you developing that economy with those people and those raw materials? Once again, we're back to the question that I focused on centrally in the new communism. Through which mode of production are things done? Capitalism is not the only way, and certainly far from the best way, to quote-unquote create jobs and for people to have meaningful employment. It is possible to have a radically different economic system, a system of socialism, in which people's work is not exploited for the benefit of cutthroat competing capitalists, who are now cutthroat competing capitalists on a world scale, who immediately, as soon as they find it not profitable, profitable enough, stop creating those jobs in this country and go to another country where they create jobs until they find another country where they can go and more ruthlessly exploit people. The people are there. That is the most important thing. And with the people, it is possible now to have a radically different economic and social system which is not built on exploitation and oppression, which in fact moves to do away with every form of exploitation and oppression. The socialist system moving toward communism on a world scale, at which point all exploitation and oppression will have been eliminated. So again, the question is, what's the economic system underlying all this? Or once again, through which mode of production are things done? Through an exploitative and oppressive system or one which is moving to eliminate exploitation and oppression and unlocking and unleashing all the human potential in that direction and for that purpose? Now, I've talked elsewhere and emphasized the anarchic workings of this system. Once more, let's go back to Marx, who said about the system of capitalism, its total disorder is its order. This is speaking to the anarchy of these different capitalists who, because of the internal nature, contradictions, and dynamics of their own system, which once again is gone into in the new communism, but because of those internal, it's in very internal nature, it's very intrinsic nature. It's very internal contradictions and dynamics. Assist is a system that rests on ruthless exploitation and ruthless competition between different units and aggregations of capital competing intensely with each other today on a world scale and in a highly globalized way. The point, the brutal reality, is, you know, we hear, for example, all this from these high-tech billionaires and so on talking about epic fails and the creative destruction of the, of the way in which they come in and 
completely undermine the way things have been done and bring in new ways of doing things. And this is upheld as a, you know, a, a great phenomenon in the world. This, you know, this creative destruction, even where you fail, you learn how to succeed at creating more creative destruction. In other words, more exploitation. And again, the brutal reality is that this disorder, this creative destruction, causes tremendous suffering on a world scale of people and of the environment, which this system and its internal dynamics has, br has brought to the point where the very future and existence of humanity is seriously threatened. And then on top of all that, there is the massive destruction brought about by the wars, the coups, and other bloody actions which are carried out in every part of the world to enforce this system's oppressive rule. The military of this country is not a body of heroes who should be thanked for their service, but a machinery of perpetual war crimes and crimes against humanity repeatedly carrying out slaughter and destruction on a mass scale in the service of a system literally built on blood and bones. And once again, this may seem like an exaggeration or an extravagant claim, but look at the wars that have actually been carried out by this military in the present day in the Middle East and the horrific results of their invasions and occupations and everything it set loose or Vietnam, you know, or the coups they pulled off and from Iran to Guatemala to Indonesia to Chile, which have cost the lives of literally more than a million people, just those coups and their consequences. This is no exaggeration. This is the reality that people have to be brought to confront. And as for people who should be appreciated, those from this military who should be supported are those who have broken with this, especially those who have come over to the side of opposition to these crimes and the system this military enforces with its depraved violence and massive destruction. And depraved violence is a very apt description you can go back to Vietnam, not only the massive bombing with chemical weapons, Agent Orange, you know, napalm, which literally sets fire to people's flesh, but, you know, the My Lai massacres, which was not an aberration or an exception or a one-time deviation, but a repeated pattern by the U.S. military in Vietnam. The soldiers who became so degraded that they cut off the ears of the people they slaughtered and carried them around as trophies. This is a reality of those that the rulers of this country want people to celebrate as heroes. Because this is the nature of the military that these people are serving in and its role in the world. Now along with everything already spoken to in terms of the actual history of this country, as well as its role in the world right up to the present, the theory of government and the founding documents of this country as articulated, for example, in the Declaration of Independence, this theory of government is in fundamental conflict with reality. Let's look at one of the most oft-quoted 
statements from the Declaration of Independence. And often you'll hear people celebrating democracy who will quote this opening of the Declaration of Independence right, right after it went in the course of human events and so on. I guess people still memorize in school on some occasion. There's this famous passage. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, nota bene as they say, all men are created, note well, all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their, by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted, instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Now, I, I would have to say there should be a certain prize given here because it's hard to conceive of packing more bullshit into such a small number of sentences. First of all, leave aside the fact about, you know, endowed by their creator. You know, let's leave aside the fact that there is no creator, there is no God, nobody's endowed by anything, by a non-existent being. So that, that's the first point. But let's leave that aside. Let's move on to the, the core of this that to secure these rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. By the way, notice that in the Constitution, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is replaced with life, liberty, and property, including the slaves who are property. But anyway, to secure these rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, governments are instituted among, among men, deriving their just power from the consent of the government. Well, this completely flies in the face of the actual history of human beings. Human beings who evolved and lived in early communal societies were not marked by all the features of the kind of society that's spoken to in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States. They did not have the kind of oppressive class divisions within their own small societies that are taken for granted in the world today by the defenders of this system and those who don't know better, even if they should. And the evolution of human beings from there to the present time did not take place through gatherings of the people to institute governments among them who derive, which derive their just powers from those who gathered together to create these governments. Think back to the statement by Marx describing, you know, the rosy dawn and what the primitive accumulation of capitalism rested on. The inhabitants, the original inhabitants of the mines in Potosi in Latin America, who were literally worked to death in the mines, passing their flesh literally into the, into, into the structures there. They were not governed by an association of people that they had come together to choose. The slaves who were hunted down in Africa, yes, there was slavery in Africa, we have to speak to all of this fascists and others, yes, there was slavery in Africa, yes, there was slavery among the original inhabitants of the Americas, but it was on a very small scale part of the fabric of those societies. When, it, when slavery, and genocide became tethered to the machinery 
and fed into the maws, the jaws of capitalist accumulation and exploitation. It became a whole other thing on a whole other horrendous level involving and killing millions of people and grinding millions more to an early death. Those people did not come together and choose a government that derived its just powers from their decisions. In the feudal societies of Europe and Japan and China, the serfs did not come together with the nobles and hold a conclave and decide upon a government of their choosing whose just powers derived from their decisions and their consent. Oftentimes, as I point out elsewhere, people did things out of necessity which led to great changes which they themselves did not anticipate and might not even have wanted. Now, I spoke in another work about people in Mexico, for example, thousands of years ago, who lived by hunting and gathering and then by their own activity used up many of the resources that they were depending upon and also due to changes in the natural environment were forced to leave the area they'd been hunting and gathering and went and settled by a river and began to carry out settled agriculture. This is just one of many examples of how this has happened repeatedly throughout the world. And then class differences of a very oppressive nature began to develop among them because of the new situation they were in. Some people were more favorably situated near a river on more, on more arable land for a combination of factors. So polarization developed among them. It wasn't that they sat down together and said, let us develop a society in which there's polarization among us, in which some will thrive and, and others will suffer, and in which those who thrive will exploit those who suffer, so they will suffer more. This is what we choose to do as a way to be governed. And of course, that government that we establish for these purposes will derive its just powers from our consent. This is absolute nonsense. It completely flies in the face of reality, and it has nothing to do with the reality of the United States of America when it broke from England and established a different new country. The slaves were not part of any conclave, nor were the original inhabitants, the so-called Indians, they were not part of the, any conclave to establish a government deriving its just powers from their consent. The character of the society, the class divisions, the social relations in the society were not decided by people sitting down and having a, having a meeting to discuss okay, some people are going to be farmers, and some are going to be rich farmers, and some are going to be poor farmers, and some are going to be indentured servants to these other people, and some are going to be slaves, and some are going to be dispossessed of everything they own. And during the course of the Civil War, we're going to start a westward expansion. 90 years from now, but let's plan it now. 90 years from now, we're going to start a westward expansion to drive the remaining original inhabitants off their land, killing them in the process suppressing them through warfare. And we'll bring a bunch of Chinese in, force them to work on and building the railroad so that we can expand all the way to... What kind of nonsense is this? It has nothing to do with how the country was founded, how it developed, 
and, and what role it has played in the world right down to today. These things arise out of the conflict between the necessity that people face and the means they devise to try to transform that necessity through a series of different societies which are fundamentally founded on the relations that people, in the face of that necessity and in the face of what they've inherited from previous generations, the relations they enter into to meet their material requirements of life, and the superstructure that arises on the basis of this, of political institutions, political processes, ideology, and culture, which serves those underlying economic relations, which are not static and forever, but continually change with changes in conditions, including the new productive forces that are brought forward through this process. This is how society has developed from the earliest emergence of human beings down to the present. And the important thing is it's, it, it was not predetermined to do so, but it has come to a point where there are now the actual material conditions to do away with all these oppressive divisions and exploitative relations among human beings of every kind. You know, besides what I've spoken to here, this has gone into in greater depth and birds cannot give birth to crocodiles, but humanity can soar beyond the horizon, part one. And there is also a very good concentrated discussion of the basic principles that I'm discussing here in Making Revolution and Emancipating Humanity, part one, particularly in the section, how does human society actually develop? The truth really does matter. And it is very important to insist on and struggle fiercely for the critical importance of actually following the truth wherever it leads, as opposed to the longing all too common among liberals and progressives. Please, can we put an end to these lies from Trump that make me uncomfortable and get back to the lies about this country that make me comfortable? In the democracy book, Democracy Can We Do Better Than That, I wrote, quote, in all bourgeois democratic countries, and this is no exaggeration, from the very earliest age, through the educational system, the mass media, and in other ways, the people are systematically misinformed and lied to about every significant question of current political and world affairs and of world history, and are systematically indoctrinated and imbued with an upside-down worldview and errant methodology. That's on page 190 for those who want to look at it. This is obviously a very provocative statement, and it is as true as it is provocative. In fact, it is so provocative precisely because it is so profoundly true. That is, it seems outrageous precisely because people have been so systematically misinformed and misled. I've already touched on some glaring examples of this, speaking to the actual history of this country and its role in the world. Some others will be spoken to through the course of this talk. And many, many other examples could be cited including the lies and distortions by the dominant institutions and representatives of this system. 
about the wars waged by this country, about socialism and the overthrow of socialism in the Soviet Union and China, the Great Depression of the 1930s and how it was ended, World War II, and how and why the U.S. emerged as the most, most powerful imperialist country after that war, what the situation is with, uh, is with Korea and why, what the 60s was really about, the character and role of imperialist heads of state who are presented as great leaders like Kennedy, Johnson, Reagan, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and Churchill, and on and on and on. While it is right and necessary to unite with people broadly in opposing the injustices and outrages committed by those who rule this country, and while this has taken on heightened importance with the coming to power of the Trump-Pence fascist regime, it is a basic truth that without breaking with American chauvinism, without confronting the very real horror of what this country has been and what it has done here and all over the, all over the world, from its founding to the present, from its founding to the president, present, and without coming to deeply hate this, it is not possible in the final analysis to retain one's own humanity and act in the highest interests of all humanity. Before moving to the point two, I just wanted to make, make a clarification. In the Declaration of Independence, the point about inciting the slaves to carry out domestic insurrections against the slave owners and inciting the Indian savages, quote unquote, to make warfare against them. The point about the King of England forcing slavery on the colonies was actually, I believe, in Jefferson's original draft of the Declaration of Independence, but for whatever reasons did not make it into the final version. But nonetheless, you can see Jefferson's thinking there. Two, the, de the decisive importance of method, scientific method, in understanding and changing the world. First, we need to speak to the glaring lack of materialism that is so widespread and common in regard to what this system is, how it actually functions, why it functions as it does, and what the consequences and implications of this are. Here again, we can refer back, for example, to the point I made earlier about the narrative of job creation as opposed to the reality of ruthless exploitation. But this lack of materialism is, is, in fact, extremely glaring. What you find, instead of people basing themselves on the critical breakthrough that Marx made in, in, in establishing what is the foundation and what are the dynamics of, a, of society, human society in general, what are the fundamental dynamics, the relations between what the forces of production are at hand and therefore correspondingly how people enter into relations, economic relations in order to utilize those productive forces. And uh, on that basis, the superstructure that arises of politics, ideology and culture and the, and the back and forth, the dialectical relations between and the contradictions and relations between 
within the economic system, between the forces and relations of production, and how those are constantly uh, moving and changing. And in turn, the contradictions between the superstructure of politics, ideology, that develops on, on the foundation of this economic system, and in turn reacts back upon it in certain ways. This breakthrough has been there for the taking for more than 150 years. And it was systematized in Marx's major work, Capital, more than 100 years ago. You know, nearly 150 years ago again. And yet, people constantly, including those who consider themselves scholars of society, constantly turn away from this, reject it, distort it, deny it, on one form or another, try to ignore this fundamental breakthrough, ignore and often oppose this 